Well, good afternoon once again. Um, as I said previously, I am Patrick Eddington, the Policy Analyst in Civil Liberties and Homeland Security here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome uh, all of you here in the auditorium as well as all of our folks watching online, either C-SPAN or our direct webcast. Appreciate that. Um, what we're going to be dealing with this afternoon on this panel uh, is an issue that has become a genuine political flashpoint, uh, both domestically and internationally. Um, a concept that is loosely defined or known as countering violent extremism, or CVE for short. Now, the United States has been dealing with extremist political ideologies and their violent manifestations since at least the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the aftermath of the Civil War. In some cases, the threats from domestic political radicals have been real and lethal. President McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist extremist, an incident that led to a nationwide crackdown on anyone who professed anarchist beliefs, whether or not they actually represented a genuine violent threat to the public. But it's really only been since the mid-20th century that we've seen the federal government create entire bureaucratic structures designed to counter political ideologies that were viewed as a threat to the prevailing political and economic order. And in many cases, the employment of the coercive power of the United States military and federal law enforcement, backed by legislation and the courts, to harass, jail, and even kill domestic political activists deemed to be extremist, violent or otherwise. During World War II, an estimated 120,000 of our fellow citizens were rounded up and placed in concentration camps on the orders of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, strictly because those Americans shared an ethnic heritage with the people who had attacked us on December 7, 1941, and despite the fact that not any Japanese Americans had any involvement or in any way facilitated the attack on Pearl Harbor. During the Cold War, the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations, the Subversive Activities Control Board, and the incredibly named House and American Activities Committee were infamous governmental entities engaged in political witch hunts and the personal and professional harm that they caused to literally thousands of innocent Americans is incalculable. That pattern of guilt by association or guilt by innuendo was a hallmark of governmental domestic surveillance and political repression in the 20th century. Now, many of these incidents were, of course, the subject of the Church Committee investigation over 40 years ago. I think some of our previous panels have at least alluded to that, if not discussed some of the specifics. And still others were uncovered by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 1980s under uh, then-Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman John Kerry. And while it would be comforting to believe that such episodes are a thing of the past, confined to an earlier, darker era of American history, recent events have demonstrated that this is, unfortunately, not the case. In the post-9-11 era, it is primarily the Arab and Muslim American communities that have become the targets of increased scrutiny by federal, state, and local authorities. That scrutiny has come in the form of overt and covert surveillance by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the National Security Agency, as well as various initiatives billed as community outreach efforts carried out under the auspices of federal CVE programs and offices in the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security, entities that will soon receive tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer funding as a result of recent congressional decisions. Now, we all know that in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, individuals inspired by the nihilistic philosophies of Salafist terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have committed horrific acts of violence on our soil, from Boston to Chattanooga to San Bernardino and Orlando. 
But should those acts by specific individuals lead to the surveillance and scrutiny of entire ethnic or religious communities? Are there discrete, reliable indicators of radicalization that we can use to identify those at risk of engaging in terrorism? And how have these governmental policies, whether in the form of community outreach or covert surveillance, impacted communities with ethnic, religious, or family links to the Middle East and South Asia? <clears throat> these questions have taken on a heightened sense of importance in light of the publicly stated views of President-elect Trump, several members of his transition team, and a number of his cabinet-level national security sector nominees. Over the next hour, our panelists, drawing on their own experience and research, will examine these and related questions. And we have what I think is an absolutely outstanding group of folks joining us today who kind of come from across the political spectrum in some respects and who have a wide variety of experience. Starting to my immediate right is my friend Mike German, former FBI agent of 16 years and currently a fellow at the Brennan Center's <clears throat> Liberty and National Security Program, where his work focuses on law enforcement as well as intelligence oversight and reform. Seated uh, to my left is Assistant Chief Luther Reynolds in the Montgomery County Police Department, um, where he has a, been a 26-year veteran of law enforcement and has been involved in a number of uh, relatively high-profile response incidents here in the D.C. metro area. Seated to his left is Arjun Singh Sethi, who is the Director of Law and Policy at the Sikh Coalition, and like me, uh, a, uh, a Georgetown Hoya alum. I really didn't like plan on packing this panel with Hoya alum, but somehow I managed to do it. Uh, seated next to Arjun is uh, Shariah Mayfield, a Georgetown law graduate and a practicing attorney in the Oregon Department of Justice in their civil litigation division. And finally, uh, my friend Maya Berry, the executive director of the Arab American Institute. Thank you all for being here. Um, I want to make it uh, very clear that the views that are expressed uh, by the panelists are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of their respective organizations unless otherwise explicitly stated. In the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, federal authorities rounded up Arab and Muslim American men in immigration enforcement sweeps as part of an effort to identify Al-Qaeda sleeper cells. And some of those cases involving those incidents, I think, are still working their way through the courts, unless I'm badly mistaken. And I've read myself some of the Department of Justice Inspector General reports on those incidents, and they, in essence, admitted that ethnic and religious bias helped to drive those roundups and those activities. And that mentality, unfortunately, um, helped to ensnare the family of one of our panelists, and in that case, uh, Shariah Mayfield. And she and her father, Brandon, have written a book about the experience. Um, it's called uh, Improbable Cause, Improbable Cause uh, The War on the Bill of Rights. We happen to have a few copies of it available. It's $15 cash or check. Um, she will autograph uh, during the break for those who are interested, and we have them right out here in the hallway. I have the Kindle version. Um, it's a great read, if a chilling read, but the person who's best equipped to kind of tell the tale is Shariah herself. So Shariah, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here amongst all these panelists who have so much experience and, and knowledge. I, I, I feel like I'm the youngest one here, so, uh, but I also have a unique experience that I want to share. Uh, I will reiterate that these views are my own and do not represent the Oregon Department of Justice or any past employer. I did work for Senator Wyden for a couple years as an intelligence advisor as well uh, and gained a lot of experience through that. So for those of you who don't know about my father's case, Brandon Mayfield, 
back in 2004, in May of 2004, he was arrested in connection to the Madrid train bombings that happened just a couple months prior. Now, these Madrid train bombings were perhaps the biggest terrorist attack that Spain had ever experienced and would be equal to our 9-11 for them. And he was connected to this, this train attack by a 100% or allegedly 100% fingerprint match that actually was a faulty fingerprint match. Uh, and throughout this experience of being targeted, because that's strongly what I believe happened, uh, my family is Muslim or Muslim American. My dad's a convert. Uh, he goes to the mosque regularly. We all go to the mosque fairly regularly, but especially him. Uh, he's also a lawyer. He represents clients, or was representing clients previously, uh, the Portland Seven. Uh, I don't know if you guys know of, of those people, but those were alleged terrorists uh, who wanted to go to, to Afghanistan to fight there. And my dad represented one of those individuals in a custody case because he did a lot of family law. So you start to build this network of folks that you associate with, especially as an attorney. And when you're an attorney, I'm also an attorney, uh, you have associations with people that are not so good. That's part of being an attorney, and I strongly believe that Due process needs to be afforded to everyone, even the most heinous of individuals. So to think that you could be implicated in some sort of uh, network because you happen to represent bad people is very chilling on the practice of law, on freedom of association. And that's something that I, I strongly uh, would speak out against. So back to 2004, May 6, 2004. Uh, my dad was at his office practicing law. Two FBI agents came to the door, arrested him. He had no idea what was going on. Uh, we had no idea, as a family members, what was going on. I came home from school that day. I was picked up from school very urgently. And the first thing I thought was, this is a big joke. This is a mistake. Oh, the FBI, the federal government's out to get my dad. It was like one of those 007 kind of movies. It just didn't seem, it seemed so surreal at the time. But after just even a few days of learning about the allegations, which eventually we did learn of those allegations, and hearing over and over that it's a 100% fingerprint match, it became very dire, very serious, and very scary. Uh, and that's an understatement. I'm now 12 years detached from that moment, and uh, it's, still, it's still very harrowing, as my dad describes it, thinking back to coming back that day and not seeing my dad and being told by lawyers that at best, even if he's innocent, it would take eight months or more just to litigate. And at worst, he could be deemed an enemy combatant. He could get sent to Guantanamo Bay, could face the death penalty. Very serious allegations here. But there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. You would think, how could my dad be implicated in a terrorist attack that he had nothing to do with? He'd never left, uh, he'd never been to Spain. His passport was, I think, over 10 years expired. Uh, he was very patriotic, served in the military, uh, was practicing law, upstanding citizen, very nonviolent. Um, we had chickens at one time, and he, he, he slaughtered one, and he was so upset after that that he said he would never do it again. Uh, and uh, I was also upset, and now I'm vegetarian. <laughs> but uh, so he's a very nonviolent person. Uh, and it, none of it made sense. So when we, when we heard about all these allegations, you know, we were very scared. But then we started learning more, especially after, you know, 
after he was in there for a while, we started going through everything, going through the legal uh, bases on which he was arrested. You have FISA, and you guys have heard from fellow panelists about FISA and about Section 702, uh, hopefully about Section 215, Freedom Act, and so on. Well, FISA, and uh, I think Patrick was uh, talking about this briefly, but during the McCarthy area, era, when that was passed, it was actually better than what it was today, I would say. Uh, you could get a warrant if the primary purpose uh, was to gather foreign intelligence. Well, now, all you need is a significant purpose. And if you look at some of the congressional history uh, on what that actually means in practice, you can listen to Senator Hatch, I think it was in 2002, uh, after the change in the law had occurred in 2001 after 9-11, uh, he made it clear that even if your primary purpose was to do a criminal investigation so long as a significant purpose was still to gather foreign intelligence, it was okay. And that's exactly what the, what the FISA warrants were not supposed to do. They were supposed to be focused only on situations where a criminal investigation wouldn't work, where you're targeting foreign uh, folks with foreign intelligence, and now it's being used against U.S. citizens for... Uh, potentially criminal investigations, or primarily criminal investigations. And that's, that's very dangerous. Um, so my dad was released after two weeks, uh, as we say, thanks to God and the Spanish police. Uh, the Spanish police did their own investigation, and in fact, they were, they were pushing back against this 100% fingerprint match uh, for a very long time, and uh, since, the, since months before, when they had first uh, gotten the latent print off the blue bag of detonators in Spain, they said, this is, not only did they say that this, they had some, you know, thoughts that it might not be a match. They actually said it was negative. It wasn't a match. And uh, federal law enforcement did not mention this to the courts. In fact, they said after meeting with the Spanish police, they thought they, that the Spanish police was satisfied with their findings. But when you actually uh, listen to or read the interviews of the, the Spanish police and Spanish forensics folks, they were saying, no, that's not the case. They were out to get my dad. And so I, I attribute it to being a Muslim American. I think the situation has been very depressing since 9-11 for Muslim Americans and probably for Muslims around the world being targeted by these surveillance uh, laws. I think the CVE, the Countering Violent Extremism programs that you'll hear more about, uh, I'm very weary of them. I'm very skeptical. I think there's been a lot of damage done in the Muslim communities of being targeted for surveillance even when you're a completely law-abiding citizen and to repair that is going to take a lot of work. And I haven't seen much on the part of federal law enforcement to, to repair the damage that's been done to the Muslim community, the lack of trust. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, we had the Muhammad, Muhammad case, the tree bombing case in 2010. And while I think that that individual obviously had some evil in him to even you know, think that the idea would be a good idea to blow up a Christmas tree with people surrounding it, I also think the way that the the federal law enforcement, but the FBI handled the situation was very badly. Uh, the dad had reached out to them in trust about concerns of, of his own son. You know, you're told if you, if you see something, say something, and Muslims are doing it, and then what happens is now your kid is facing 25 years in prison when I think that situation could have been avoided if he, if he wasn't provided that fake bomb, which is what the FBI had done, and it took them a couple years of talking to him and coaxing him to get him to that situation. So I hope that as you listen to the, the other panelists, you'll think of the, the, the negative impact that these surveillance laws have on Muslim Americans and 
it's not just going to be Muslim Americans. I mean, especially in light of our new uh, president-elect, uh, things could get very bad very fast, even worse than they are. Um, Korematsu, the, the Japanese internment camps, camps, are one example of very negative point in our history. Uh, I'd like to remind you all that the Supreme Court has never overruled that decision. It vacated it. I think that's a total cop-out. That decision should have been overruled. It's completely contrary to our constitutional rights. Uh, and it's disgusting that something like that might reoccur uh, potentially in the next few years. Uh, so I'll leave it on that note. Uh, there's only a few books in the hallway. Hopefully you, you'll buy them, mostly because I don't want to carry them back <laughs> <on> the <airport. laughs> into the airport. Uh, but hopefully that gives you some context around, uh, around my views on the situation and on the, the situation that I experienced with my dad. I also, I also hope that for the people that are looking into forensic science, uh, or that work in forensic science, you look towards blind testing and eliminating cognitive and confirmation bias in that field as well, because bias exists there as well, not just in uh, law enforcement agencies, but in the labs, and that's a huge problem as well. Thanks. Sure, I thank you. And I, I should note that when the Department of Justice ultimately, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice ultimately issued their report uh, on the FBI's uh, mishandling of the Mayfield case, one of the things that they explicitly acknowledged in there was that bias did, in fact, uh, play a role. I think it was the decisive role, quite frankly, but it played a role in the very thing that, that happened to Brandon Mayfield and, and to Sharia, uh, which is why I think the work that she's trying to do uh, in this area of forensics is so incredibly important. Now, my friend Mike German, as I said, spent 16 years at the FBI. I, I don't expect him to defend the FBI today. <laughs> But what, what, what I would like for you to do is, since you have dealt with terrorism yourself, you worked undercover for almost two years, penetrating uh, right-wing, essentially white supremacist-type organizations in this country, um, looking at those groups and their activities and the potential threat that they posed. You say that there is a right way and a wrong way to do this, essentially. Can you kind of walk us through your worldview on this in terms of how, how we approach this threat? Because we have a lot of folks in this country, as, as all of us are aware, who are deeply concerned about this terrorism threat. It is real. We've seen it happen. So we don't want to, at the end of the day, none of us want to minimize the idea that there is no threat. There is. We've seen it. Americans have suffered from it. But at the same time, there is, at least in your view, I think, a right way and a, right, a wrong way to go about this. So give us your perspective on that. Um, so, I, I think if we could imagine a perfect world, what we would want is all of our security resources focused on people who are doing harm, with none of the impact of that affecting anybody who's doing anything innocent, right? And I think my former colleagues in law enforcement and, and my colleagues in the civil liberties community would agree on that, right? We want to catch the bad guys and let the, the innocent go about their business without interference. So the question is, how do you achieve that goal? And I think my biggest problem with the Countering Violent Extremism program is that it's based on this flawed premise that people move from adopting bad ideas to becoming violent. And there are any number of studies now of actual terrorists, people who have committed violent acts in the name of a particular political cause or, or uh, other reason, 
and what it shows is that they are not typically very ideological, and that's what I found from my own experience. I was undercover in neo-Nazi groups and anti-government militia groups, prepared for cases uh, in other groups as well. And what I found is that the people who were committing the criminality and the acts of violence did not really appreciate the people who were writing the books and the manifestos and hosting the online forums. That stuff was illegitimate to them. It was a waste of time. What we needed to do is take action. So the idea that we are taking this programming and focusing it on, on the expression of idea, uh, of I ideas and ideologies is, is misdirecting our resources. And we should be focused where there is actual evidence of criminality. And unfortunately, what, what has happened is the government has taken this uh, theoretical model of radicalization uh, that, that posited that people move in a very linear pathway from adopting bad ideas, expressing those bad ideas, to becoming a terrorist to justify the surveillance of entire communities based on their ideology. And we've seen that uh, taking place in any number of contexts throughout history, right? None of this is new. Uh, the, the FBI's radicalization or radicals division was formed in, in the early 1900s, led by a young J. Edgar Hoover. So this isn't a new phenomenon, this idea that, that if we can suppress the bad ideas we, we don't like, somehow the violence will result. There's no evidence of that. In fact, I would argue the evidence shows the opposite, that by trying to suppress the ideas, you actually open up the, the argument for somebody who wants to commit an act of violence. And to, to kind of build on that point just briefly from a historical standpoint, I, I use the uh, assassination of, of the late President William McKinley as kind of an example uh, of someone with a particular ideology um, ultimately turning violent uh, and, and acting that out literally on the President of the United States. And in the wake of all that, as I mentioned, you saw this crackdown kind of nationally. But one of the more interesting things that took place was this passage of legislation in 1903 called the Anarchist Exclusion Act, which basically said that if you are an immigrant um, and you want to come to this country, but you have expressed um, support for anarchist views, you are a self-declared anarchist, et cetera, um, we're not going to let you into the United States. And the reason that I bring that up is that um, our president-elect during the course of, of the campaign had talked about this ban, essentially, on folks you know, coming from countries out of a fear of the particular ideas um, that they might necessarily bring here. Of course, the problem today is the same as the problem then. Even though our technology in 1903 wasn't quite as sophisticated <coughs> as it is today, you still had the telegraph. You still had newspapers. Uh, and within a few years of the Anarchist Exclusion Act actually being passed, you had pretty widespread use of telephones, at least in government and elsewhere. Um, and of course, it did not stop uh, anarchism in the United States. I would actually argue that that ban and the government's uh, attempt to suppress the idea actually made it kind of a sexy forbidden fruit from a political standpoint. And you ultimately did see yet a second wave of bombings that were carried out by anarchists in the 19, uh, 19, 19, 20 period. So I think when we start talking about some of these laws and some of these ideas about trying to suppress speech, suppress ideas, things of that nature, our own history kind of tells us that that's really not exactly um, ultimately the way to go. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I could swear that Britain's MI5 and even the FBI itself have done 
their own surveys on this particular topic in which they found that when they looked at all these past cases, that there was well, there was not actually no identifiable pattern. Am I right on that? Right. I, I mean, I think virtually every uh, empirical examination of actual terrorists has, has concluded that there is no profile, there's no pattern, there's no predictable pathway, there are no clear indicators of who's going to commit harm. For for you know, for every person who commits an act of violence. Uh, there are 10,000 people who have that same ideology, who behave in the same way, have the same so, sort of behaviors that are that in in these radicalization models are are uh, identified as what to look for, and and you know the the problem is uh, there are a lot of bad ideas out there, <laughs> and and uh, and the government tends to. Uh, once this uh, model is allowed, expand out, right? I mean, it started with anarchists, but uh, you know those labor organizers were kind of expressing similar ideas. So let's go ahead and, and suppress them through surveillance. And oh, by the way, a lot of the labor, labor organizers who are arresting under these programs are being defended by civil liberties lawyers who must share the same uh, ideas. So we'll we'll suppress them as well. And and. So, you know, if, if we stay with this model that the problem is extreme beliefs rather than terrorist violence, it, it's going to justify all the surveillance. It's going to justify all the, the aggressive law enforcement activity targeting communities because of what they believe or, or because of, the, of the, the political opinions they express. And that's a terrific segue to Arjun because earlier this year, you had a sensational piece in Politico, uh, I think it was Politico magazine itself, talking about your own experience and discoveries with respect to the FBI's uh, so-called shared responsibility committees. Um, can, can you go into that? Can you help kind of educate us on exactly what SRCs are supposed to be, how you came into possession of the data and so on? Sure. Um, I was invited by the FBI to preview a countering violent extremism program called a Shared Responsibility Committee. Um, typically, when these meetings happen, um, they are confidential. Um, what ended up happening later was that an anonymous official from the Department of Homeland Security um, gave quotes to Political Magazine about Shared Responsibility Committees. Um, and specifically disclosed that SRCs, the abbreviation, have been beta tested across the country. Uh, so I took that anonymous disclosure to mean uh, that I had the authority uh, to talk about the program, um, and thus I wrote that essay for Politico magazine. So shared responsibility com uh, committees are FBI uh, organized committees that consist of, for example, a law enforcement official, a religious leader, maybe a youth coach, a mental health professional, a social worker, who assemble and convene for the purpose of helping a Muslim American who the FBI determines is at risk of becoming a violent extremist, right? So the idea is the FBI identifies a youth who might one day become a violent extremist, and they convene local committees consisting of the various types of professionals I just described in an effort to stop this youth from one day becoming a violent extremist. Uh, three critiques. 
First, the FBI never disclosed the criteria for determining that a Muslim American youth is at risk of becoming a violent extremist. So for example, is it based upon things like protected speech, right? Are they trying to convene committees because a Muslim American uh, youth expressed a newfound interest in religiosity, uh, participated in a protest, posted a controversial article on Facebook? Um, this isn't far-fetched. Um, according to government documents, um, the types of indicators they are looking for are things like becoming confrontational at home, um, ideological differences. Um, second, we know uh, based on other programs, and I think it's important to look, to look at the intersection of CVE with other uh, uh, overreaching, over-inclusive law enforcement programs, national security programs as well. So for example, um, we know under the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, uh, which asks local law enforcement to report activities that they believe are indicative of pre-terrorism planning, um, that Muslim Americans who have visited Costco and purchased large pallets of water, uh, Muslim Americans who search for video games online, um, Muslim Americans who've placed large purchase orders for home computers at Best Buy have been visited by the FBI, right? We also know with something like the watch list program, um, you can be branded a terrorist based on a single social media post. That's a fact. You just have to look at the watchlisting guidance that was leaked to The Intercept a couple years ago. Um, and again, within that, we know that Dearborn, Michigan, a city with less than 100,000 residents, has more watchlisted residents than any other city in the country except for New York. Um, so that's the first critique, right? That the FBI never actually specified the criteria for determining that a Muslim American will at one day uh, uh, be at risk of becoming a violent extremist. Second, they never specified the actual techniques that they use to determine that a Muslim American will one day become a violent extremist. So for example, thinking about something like the DOJ racial profiling guidance. In late 2014, uh, the Department of Justice promulgated uh, uh, this guidance that specifically lays out the rules and the circumstances under which federal law enforcement and local and state law enforcement can profile on the basis of anything, right? Gender, uh, sexual orientation, faith, race. Um, and they specifically in that document allow for the TSA, allow for Customs and Border Patrol um, to profile on the basis of any category uh, they see fit. Um, and of course, CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, their jurisdiction extends 100 miles inwards, uh, and they are the largest law enforcement agency uh, in the country um, by far. Uh, this guidance also allows for um, law enforcement to use confidential informants absent any kind of suspicion. Uh, it also sanctions intelligence gathering programs like the NYPD demographics program um, that um, um, some say has been disbanded, but I will leave that to another discussion another time. Uh, so it's also important to be thinking about the techniques that are being used to determine that a Muslim American is at one day, is, is at some point in the future, at risk of becoming a violent extremist. And I would submit to you that just like with respect to the, the first argument I made, um, the techniques that are being used are extraordinarily over-inclusive. Um, and even in the event that they might actually find a Muslim American who might one day uh, uh, be at risk of this, um, the techniques don't justify um, uh, uh, the ends. Um, the only other point I will make is regarding the actual committees. Um, 
I would just say they're flawed in general. Um, that's because the, uh, the, the FBI, under these committees, um, there is no uh, uh, protections from disclosure um, for mental health professionals, uh, for lawyers. Uh, they can later be called. Um, so if a, if a member of an SRC helps an individual and that individual is later charged, private confidential notes that a mental health professional has with this particular individual could be subpoenaed. This mental health professional who is on this committee could later be called to testify. So could the lawyer. Uh, furthermore, the FBI also said that if a committee determines that a youth is no longer at risk of becoming a violent extremist, the FBI can still investigate them. They can still monitor them, right? So there's no point for a committee to be convened if the FBI can continue to monitor that individual while the committee is working with them and even after the committee has made the determination that this individual is no longer at risk of becoming a violent extremist. Uh, so suffice to say, I was very critical of the program, remain very critical of the program. It is not clear where it stands right now. Again, there was uh, this disclosure that they were being beta tested. Um, there were semi-private conversations in which the FBI said that um, uh, SRCs have been discontinued. Um, I am skeptical. Um, I would also add, and I think we will get to this soon, uh, there are also state analogs to these programs um, that are being developed, that are being used. Um, so I would uh, uh, submit that they are very likely coming to a city near you. Rajin, thank you. Um, we heard Shariah's personal experience. Maya, as the executive director of the Arab American Institute, you, your organization represents thousands of Arab and Muslim Americans and Arab Christian Americans around the country. Um, I know your organization has had issues with a lot of these kinds of government surveillance programs going back uh, into the 1970s uh, when, when the Palestinian student movement really started to kind of take off. Um, and Palestinian American public intellectuals like Dr., uh, the late Dr. Edward Said at Columbia um, came under FBI surveillance. Give us, uh, if you will, kind of a, of historical perspective um, from, from the Arab American community standpoint about what we have seen over the last several years and kind of the concerns, maybe some of the hopes that you have going forward. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, both to you, Patrick, and to Cato for hosting uh, this conversation and for the leadership that the institution has shown on these issues. Very grateful for it. I apologize in advance in that I have prepared remarks because I'm being sensitive to time and how much I wanted to include, so I'm going to try to be concise. But I really appreciate the way you're, you're opening our conversation on this, and that is that, um, as Patrick said, we're um, a community not unfamiliar with the idea that unpopular political speech um, ends up in a, a problem uh, with government interaction. And you correctly noted uh, Dr. Edward Said. Uh, the president of our organization, Dr. Jim Zogby, is among the people that were um, profiled then. Um, and it is literally the foundation for the institution that I work for. We were established in 1985 specifically to deal with a history of political exclusion. So it's, uh, it's in some ways a foundational reason for why we, we're here today. Um, so the Institute, um, the Arab American Institute, is a political empowerment enterprise. We represent roughly 3.7 million Arab Americans. Um, um, potentially 35% uh, of whom are American Muslims. Um, 
but the question would be why we would be engaged on CDE, I think, is a logical one to do. We represent domestic and foreign policy priorities of our community. So why CDE was, was an issue that we decided to engage on. Um, before the terror attacks of 9-11, AI was engaged on a variety of concerns, from opposing the use of secret evidence via old 1950s immigration law and its application um, uh, in immigration proceedings to CAP's automated passenger profiling system. Uh, we've demanded that our government strike a better balance uh, between um, our national security and our civil liberties, um, basically keeping us both safe and free. Uh, we do not believe that the Obama administration CDE programs have done that, and that is one of the reasons, uh, principal reasons for why we're engaged on the issue. Uh, two additional points I want to highlight uh, before sort of really getting into it is that CT does not equal CDE. Um, our government should not con uh, conflate counterterrorism policy with, quote, countering violent extremism policy, and I certainly don't intend to do that in my comments today. Uh, further, the nature of the threat or efficiency of counterterrorism or CVE programs internationally are not my focus. My comments are specifically limited to the concerns that we have about domestic countering violent extremism programs. So the question legitimately could be, how did we get here? Um, in, uh, in 2011, the White House released a document called the Strategic Implementation Plan for Empowering Local Partners to Prevent Violent Extremism in the United States, end quote. Uh, the plan was introduced as a domestic counterterrorism strategy in response to the recruitment efforts of organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIL. Uh, this report became the foundation for the federal government's uh, countering violent extremism programs. And while a movement was afoot, efforts were successfully challenged uh, within policymakers um, to kind of slow the pace of the development of these programs to be perhaps more critical of what had been done in place. Um, for example, a White House summit that was scheduled for October of 2014 was delayed. Uh, there was additional examination of, um, and I would say sort of critical thinking applied to programs like the UK model, prevent, which we haven't gotten into yet, but I think is important for the same reason that Arjun notes the SRC piece. Um, they, they, um, I think there was a successful internal effort to say, let's examine these programs more um, critically. Let's decide whether or not there is a scientific evidence to suggest one could step in and prevent an act of terror from taking place. Um, on January 7th of 2015, the horrific attacks of Charlie Hebdo um, occurred. On January 10th, just a few days later in Paris, the White House announced that its CVE summit would take place the following month in February of 2015. Um, CVE efforts are explained um, as two main objectives, to increase the resilience of communities and to counter what is commonly described as the process of radicalization of violence. Um, Mike talked a bit about that, but I want to I say a little bit more because I think it helps understand and frame this as the civil rights issue that I think it, it is. Um, our framework is modeled after the controversial and highly problematic PREVENT program in the United Kingdom launched in 2010. The major differentiation and if you say this to an Obama administration official, they're just so upset, saying you don't understand it, it's not based on PREVENT. What's the difference? PREVENT was government initiated. The program that we're doing is community led. So you take government resources and dollars, you give them to community based organizations, and then you say we're not doing PREVENT. But the reality is there hasn't been a very successful examination of why PREVENT did not work. Um, we have several anecdotal examples that show that CVE has not been a community-led program. Indeed, it is conceived in an echo chamber, ignored community concerns, and deployed, frankly, without community buy-in. The government's mantra may be community-led and com community-designed, but claiming that is a wide community support for CVE efforts is misleading narrative, and claiming that CVE is a community-led initiative is outright fiction. 
I will defer to my colleagues on the panel on the rich scholarship that exists, uh, but I do want to just highlight a few assumptions uh, that are supported by empirical evidence. Domestic terrorism comes from many sources, including groups with violent anti-government and racist agendas. Mike's experience demonstrates for years his undercover work in that area. Therefore, CVE programs as we know them address a problem that is proportionally small within the larger landscape of domestic terror, not to mention the much larger problem of violence in our society in general. Not minimizing the threat that exists, putting it in its proper context before we decide we're going to launch millions and millions of dollars worth of expenditure that potentially violate people's rights. CVE programs are based on disproven theories of, quote, radicalization that suggest there's an identifiable path that an individual follows on the road to becoming an extremist and ultimately committing an act of violence. On this path, we are told there are indicators like grievances with US government foreign policy. That is often an indicator that we see, even though, again, our government tells us indicators are not used. Um, having observed those indicators, we look for what they call off-ramps. Again, we can do something to prevent an act uh, of violence from taking care. An unsound theory feeding what used to be a cottage industry now operates with the weight of the White House, major think tanks, leading universities, and the price tag of unknown millions of taxpayer-funded grants. And I do say unknown not because I haven't done the research to try to find out, but because it's very difficult to determine how much is actually being spent on CVE programs. Congress stepped into the game more recently by allocating um, 9 million one year, 10 million another, specifically for community engagement. I'm sorry, 49 million, and then 10 million of that was made for uh, community engagement grants that are just now getting ready to be awarded. We'll hear about those soon. Because of the approach of current CVE programs presumes a particular problem in my community that must be addressed, these programs simply further securitize the relationship between Arab Americans and American Muslims and their government, and as such, are unproductive. When Secretary Johnson visits local mosque after local mosque to talk about community resilience, while in <clears throat> DHS markets such visits with hashtags like DHS in Dearborn, referring to the wonderful city of Dearborn, Michigan, which Arjun already pointed out, second only to New York City in terms of the number of people on the watch list, a city of roughly 90,000 people. It has the highest concentration of Arab Americans in the entire country. It is clear to us these programs view our community as a specific, unique, and urgent domestic terror threat. This is profiling from the highest level of our government because while there have regrettably been some cases of people traveling to join ISIL, or Al-Shabaab, as the case of some in Minnesota, these cases are limited in number and cannot justify a community-wide approach. A securitized relationship with my community exploits community-based engagement to pursue a divisive, controversial, and unproven counterterrorism program, and we must demand better accountability measures from federal, state, and local municipalities. A securitized relationship with my community and the programs like CVE that it feeds stoke public fear of attacks, suspicion of Arab Americans and American Muslims. And while this is something we should always work to oppose and counter, we should be particularly concerned about this in light of the most recent surge that we've seen in hate crimes and discrimination. Finally, there are many reasons to oppose CVE efforts, but on a most basic level, programming should at least adopt a policy of do no harm. Because of treating an entire community as suspect, these programs run the possibility of alienating the very young people in our community that they are cast as different or the existential other by their own government. We have as the president of our institute, Jim Zogby, is fond of saying, we have a successful CVE program. It's called the American Experience. It is the reason we're not having the same experiences as France and other countries in Europe. With CVE, kids who have never seen themselves as anything but American 
are now being asked to be vigilant because they may in fact be, quote, at-risk youth. This is not only ineffective, it is harmful. Programs of this nature require more analysis and oversight than they have received. The members of Congress have uh, begun to look at these issues and provide some oversight. The Government Accounting Office is conducting a current review with a, with a report expected to be out in the spring, um, attempting to figure out uh, what actually is, is, is happening. Um, we're pleased to see that the, the role that Congress will play in this area is, is, uh, is being stepped up. Um, and I just want to mention this with regards to SRCs because in some ways it's very much like the point about the PREVENT program. We were told SRCs, and I think they've officially now said that publicly, have been disbanded. The federal government, FBI will not be engaged with SRCs anymore. Just like we're told PREVENT is not what is happening in our country. But the reality is there is a program currently in Los Angeles that looks exactly like what SRCs have been described to be. But because it's not federal-led, we're told this is different. So the pivot on this still produces the same end result. And I think that's something to be very uh, concerned about. Um, I started by asking you why, telling you why we're engaged on CVE. And I want to close with the request that you two engage on this issue. Um, and the, the, the reason why is that I think you should oppose it for um, the fact that it's profiling and discrimination, the fact that it's government waste and inefficiency, that it's intellectually dishonest. Um, and it is a program that violates individual privacy and the freedom of expression. Um, it has had a disparate impact on people in my community, but um, I, I think, um, um, as we've often said in some ways on these issues, we happen to be the canary in the coal mine. Um, there are reasons why every American should be concerned about what our government is doing in this regard. Maya, thank you. <clears throat> you know, in my high school class, four of my um, closest friends uh, went into law enforcement. Um, they're all Missouri State Highway Patrolmen. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about them and worry about them um, because they have to deal with the public. Um, which, if you spend any time in law enforcement, can be a challenge, I know. Um, we ask our folks in law enforcement, essentially, to kind of walk this very fine line between protecting us um, from the murderers and the rapists uh, and the thieves uh, and other criminals in our midst on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, we expect them to <clears throat> constantly keep our rights in mind and not violate our rights and all the rest of that. That is a tension that we deal with, uh, law enforcement deals with, uh, on a day in and day out basis. There is nothing that is easy about that job. Uh, and I, I personally am grateful both to my friends in high school um, who have committed the better part of their public lives to law enforcement in that respect. And I'm very grateful for uh, what you do over in Montgomery County. It's, it's obvious that um, the leadership in Montgomery County is very concerned about this problem. They have invested time, money, and resources uh, in, a, in a concern about uh, extremism within Montgomery County and, and what it might lead to. Mm -hmm. So I, we would be very grateful if you could kind of give us the law enforcement perspective on this, what the experience has been in Montgomery County, what you all are basically trying to achieve right now. And I just want to thank the Cato Institute for including uh, me and, and, and law enforcement in this discussion. As I look around this diverse panel and I hear the discourse and the debate and the disagreement, it, it's exactly where we need to be. We're in this together. It's very challenging. I don't think there's an easy answer. Um, we can't ignore um, this problem, 
we have to lead through it. And there's only one way to lead through it, and that's together. We have to do this together. So with that, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I, I believe for policing, in Montgomery County at least, and I think a lot of agencies, to a large degree, this is an extension of community policing. And when I say that, what do I mean? Um, there's a problem, and there's a very real threat, and it's something that we can't ignore, and it's something that we have a responsibility to do something about. We need to protect the people in our communities. Um, and so, as, as I think Mike said in the very beginning, how do we do that? How do we do that while we honor the Constitution, while we create no harm? I like the way you said that. We should not create harm. When we're done, we should be better than where we started. And leadership, I think, is leaving it better than how you found it. Um, so I, I like that. I'll, I'll take that away from today. We, don't, we shouldn't create harm. Um, and I've heard a lot today, and I've heard over the years, that there has been harm created on the federal, state, and local level. And there's very uh, significant concern today more than ever about that, particularly post-election. Um, one of the things that was mentioned early on and something that I actually thought about before preparing for today is the trial is ongoing with Dylan Roof. I hate to even say his name because I think um, that th there's just an element of evil there in what happened and how it happened. But one of the things that we know um, are there ha in a lot of these events that occur, mass casualty events, active shooter, other things like that, there are warning signs. And after the fact, a neighbor, a teacher, a coach, a parent, a sibling will say, you know what, golly, I saw the person was more, more increasingly isolated. I, I saw these notes that were threatening in nature. I saw a lot of changes in their approach to things. I, I saw uh, things on social media. You know, I saw him going to the hardware store. I saw that on, on, his, on his Facebook page, he was buying guns and ammunition, and he was increasingly agitated and was making. So we know that there are some things that we can learn after these events occur. And so um, the, the idea of see something, say something, to me is really oversimplifying. It's almost like in the old days, um, say no to drugs. Well, that, that's great. I agree with that, but that doesn't really address a very complex, very difficult, challenging problem, right? So the same thing with see something, say something. That sounds great. If you see something, say something. Well, who do you say it to? How do you structure that conversation? Well, to start with, there's got to be trust. And many of the communities that need us the most in law enforcement trust us the least. Think about that. That's pretty powerful, right? The communities that need us the most trust us the least. So we already, right off the bat, have a pretty significant challenge to overcome because many of those communities that need us are not willing or interested or are fearful to even report crimes, maybe because of the countries of their origin, where they came from, maybe because of experiences they had here in the United States. But we need people to engage with us to be able to report crimes, to be witnesses to crimes, to prevent, provide information so that we can do a better job of protecting their communities and protecting them. So a lot of communities are very underserved, and, um, and there's a couple myths that I thought of and I've heard today, and that is that radicalization and, and violent extremism, one of the myths that I would say are not Muslim-centric. And somehow in our country, that has been the narrative, and it continues to be, 
And that's not our narrative, I can assure you. We are brothers and sisters in our communities. We, I couldn't more strongly say we're with you. We're together in this, in, this, in this effort, in this initiative. It has to be that way. It's not us and them. And if it becomes that, we're not going to be very successful. And to some degree, that has occurred. So how do we overcome that? How do we build trust? How do we build relationships? Easier said than done. Community policing sounds great, but how do we find ways to build those ties with our communities that really need us? Um, and so a lot of what you've heard today is part of our model, building resilience. Um, and this is, I'm going to go over these slides very quickly. But Hedy Miramati is a, a, a person that I'll call a subject matter expert who helped um, Montgomery County develop some of these um, uh, conversations, engaged a lot of different people, particularly in the faith community, um, and not just Muslim community, but all the faith community. We have a very diverse community in Montgomery County, engaged a very large number of people. Another myth that is like CVE is like law enforcement-centric, and, and I think um, there's a lot of pros and cons to it, but we would have, I, I would say very strongly that ours is a community-led initiative. It's not government-led. We don't have these committees and panels. We don't have surveillance efforts. A lot of the things that have been referenced at the federal level and some of the examples, very real examples, of abuse and mistakes and hurt and harm that have occurred, we are very intentionally trying not to do any of those things. Um, so it is a collaborative effort involving a lot of different people uh, in the community. This is, you referenced Jay Johnson and some of his visits. This is actually a visit where there was a large um, gathering of people in our community um, and just some of the areas that we, main pillars, if you will, that we focus on, very similar to community policing, is engagement, education, and training, very specific, um, a referral process, intervention. And the example that I like to give, we're not qualified to do that, and I, I've heard that kind of some. I'm not a HIPAA expert. I'm certainly not a mental health expert. I'm not a psychologist. And so I'm not the appropriate person to do a lot of the interventions. But there are examples of people, and, we, and this happens almost daily in our schools throughout the country and, in, and locally in Montgomery County, where there's an opportunity, where there's trust, where there's a relationship, where we can do intervention. And when I say intervention, we can, because there's that trust, we can maybe get somebody help who's suicidal, maybe somebody who's violent, maybe a kid who... Um, wants to harm somebody and has taken ad additional steps to do that. So how can we be effective in navigating through those things, but we're not the primary ones leading this effort? Um, and so there, that, that's a challenging thing, to be able to intervene and to deal with these things effectively in a way that we prevent violent acts, but in a way that we maybe prevent somebody from going to prison. The example that was given earlier, I thought that was a great example. Maybe... I don't know all the details of that case, but had some, something been done earlier on, maybe that individual didn't have to go to prison for 25 years. Maybe there's something that could have been done to deal with that in a different way. Um, and so, uh, again, this is just kind of a, another descriptor um, about the Montgomery County model, um, and there's others in our region who have an interest. Again, it's very community policing-centric. Um, the idea of building trust and relationships with our communities. And, um, and the University of Maryland is actually the, the administrator of the program. Um, and there is some grant monies that, that have funded this. 
and it does involve HHS, it involves the chaplains, it involves uh, the NGO community, it involves a very, very large swath of the faith community, and, and we are one of many, many partners, and we're a piece, but no, we're not the main piece. And the idea is that we would have an ombudsman, and when there's some of those more challenging HIPAA type of um, uh, situations where somebody needs to have more training, more expertise, where there are privacy issues, somebody else would deal with those rather than the police. So that's a, a segue, at least, into our efforts to try to navigate this in a way that we're not creating harm, in a way that actually, if we do it right, we're doing a better job of protecting the vulnerable communities that we have in Montgomery County. We're doing a better job of developing trust, which I think, is, as was stated today, is um, in disrepair to a large degree in our country, particularly post-election, and um, finding that balance. And the last thing I'll say is, as I was listening, one of my favorite quotes, I've been to the Holocaust Museum many times. Every time I go there, I learn something new. And there's a quote that says, evil prevails when good men remain silent. And there is evil in this world. Dylan Roof, in my opinion, um, is, is, is evil. What he did, I just can't, it's hard for me to even fathom, even having been in law enforcement almost my entire career. And people like that should be dealt with. Those people, if we're successful, maybe, maybe in the future would survive that and maybe that event doesn't occur. We have an obligation to do what we can, to focus on and use our resources in a positive way to not create harm, but to keep our communities safe. And there, it's a very, very difficult time to do that. Thanks so much for that overview. I'm gonna basically in invoke moderator privilege here to, to ask the, the first question. When a program gets started, there's usually, at least in my experience in government, there's usually some kind of catalyzing event. Um, are you familiar with kind of the background of, of where this particular Montgomery County initiative came from? Whose idea was it? Was, was there a catalyzing event? Was there something specific that happened that made folks in, in, in the county government and in the police department and maybe within the community kind of say, you know, maybe we need to take a look at this. Maybe, maybe we need to think about that. Was there a catalyzing event of some kind? I, I think more from a leadership perspective, there was a recognition being in the national capital region, um, knowing that uh, uh, terrorism was a, was a, uh, a real concern, um, knowing that violent extremism um, on, on a whole lot of different levels was a concern. Also, um, the whole division with the Muslim community, we have a very large Muslim population in Montgomery County. Um, and there's a lot of fear. I'll, I'll tell you, um, just anecdotally, I, I've heard a little bit about it today. One of the things that has really touched my heart more than anything is children now are fearful post-election. Children are being bullied. There's all kinds of things that are going on just because of the very fact that they're Muslim. And so um, I think to answer your question of what was the catalyst, it was more general. It wasn't a reaction. Um, to a singular big event. It was more a leadership recognition from our county executive, and a lot of this comes from the top down. Um, CVE aside, how can we build bridges with all of our communities? He's actually funded a position in his cabinet uh, for somebody to actually kind of collaborate with and partner with and coalesce with the faith community um, to, to have a, uh, a greater um, recognition and to hear them 
He actually has meetings with them fairly regularly to hear how we can do better. And the police are just one of many, many service providers in Montgomery County. Um, and, and we've heard uh, I, very loud and clear that there is a gap, uh, there are lots of needs, and we can do better. Mike, did you have? Um, so, so one thing I, I want to address is, is this concept of warning signs, because it comes up over and over again in this context. And unfortunately, what we find is they're very easy to spot in hindsight, but they're not predictive, right? I mean, there are plenty of alienated people out there. A tiny minority of them ever commit any act of violence. You know, there are plenty of people <clears throat> with, with ideas I find abhorrent, like the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists, the vast majority of which would never harm a fly. So it, it's this, it, it's trying to put a model of predictability onto something where there isn't one. And a perfect example is the FBI, with all of its investigative tools, all of its intelligence capabilities, all of its analytical capabilities, investigated Tamerlan Tsarnaev for 90 days. They investigated Nadal Hassan. They investigated Omar Mateen. They investigated David Heatley, right? And they didn't predict that, he, that these individuals were gonna go out and commit violent acts. So if the FBI, with all of its tools, and apparently it must have these warning signs, can't predict who's going to be violent, how does this program suppose that some layperson is going to be able to predict who's going to be violent in the first place? And in the second place, when you look at the models that have been promoted, like the FBI's radicalization model, which said <clears throat> one indicator of potential dangerousness was growing a beard. <laughs> Bates, we're and you talking can't to you. protect yourself because shaving your beard is also an indicator of dangerousness, <laughs> uh, which, which is hilarious. But, but what is laid on top of that is there were a lot of, of very common behaviors in the Muslim community. Increased religiosity, wearing Muslim garb, these sorts of things were, were designated as indicators of dangerousness. <laughs> and that material's out there on the web. You know, the, the National Counterterrorism Center <clears throat> leaked a document that, that for CVE that was a practitioner's guide and it was a four-page checklist. And one of the things that teachers or social workers were supposed to evaluate on a five-point scale was whether there was sufficient parent-child bonding. Now, first of all, I'm not aware of any study that suggests that terrorists don't bond well with their parents or do bond well. I'm not sure whether five was going to be good and one bad or, or the other. And all of these things are out there. So if lay people are going to try to apply these sorts of indicators to people they think are dangerous, they're going to be misidentifying people and misdirecting resources, reporting the wrong people to law enforcement that can cause all kinds of harms like the sting operations that are directed at people who are, who are identified by law enforcement as potential extremists. Um, so, you know, it's, it's easy to say that in hindsight, oh yeah, we knew there was a problem there, but it's not easy to say, we know this person who's alienated is gonna commit a crime. And, and I, I really liked the framing that you had about looking at all crimes, that it's, it's suicides, that it's any kind of violent action, that it's any kind of assistance some person needs in the community, but that's not what CVE is. And from the beginning, when the White House started talking about this, Maya and I and a bunch of our, our colleagues in the civil liberties community went to the White House, went to the agencies, and said, 
don't focus this on terrorism. You know, don't focus this on, the mo on one community. You know, broaden it out, look at all problems, and they refused, and they refused to take it out of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI as the lead actors. So it is a law enforcement program, and it is only focused on one very narrow slice of violence that affects our society while ignoring the others. And, and the only third thing, let me just conclude with this, is I think it's crucially important that, that community policing happen and that you have strong relationships with the community, but it should be about understanding from the community what their problems are, not telling them what the problem is and asking them to respond. And one way of building trust is transparency. And we at the Brennan Center have been engaged in a two-year FOIA campaign trying to get information from these programs, including the Montgomery County program, and it's pulling teeth to get information. We would think that if somebody has warning signs of terrorism, that they would be published broadly, but they hide them because they know they won't withstand public scrutiny. When I first started to kind of look at this issue generally, one of the questions that kind of popped into my mind is, how does it work with gangs? Like an MS-13 or, you know, any of these other um, kind of violent gang organizations that we think about. Um, how does that contrast, essentially, with this problem? How does the experience, how does American law enforcement experience in dealing with the gang problem? Is there anything to draw upon there, whether it's lessons learned that should be applied or lessons learned that should not be applied? Yeah, and I think I agree with most of what you just said. I, I um, First of all, it's an evolution, um, and, and there are a lot of lessons learned whether the desired changes have all occurred. I know a lot have occurred because there's been a lot of mistakes made. And I think a lot of what you described, um, many would say is accurate and is we need to do things differently. And dealing with gangs is similar. So um, education, prevention, building relationships, having the ability to communicate. Most people are good people, right? And some, um, a very small number of people in certain communities that are gang members are committing crimes, they're violent, they're victimizing people, so we should be focused on that small number. Not everybody, and we shouldn't be creating harm and havoc in our communities just because of those people. We shouldn't be violating people's rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so good old-fashioned police work, talking to people, making sure that people are reporting when they're victimized, the communities that I described earlier, there's a lot of communities that are afraid to report yeah. that they've been victimized. Even things like violent rapes and, and even homicides and things like that. So how do we build that rapport? Well, a big part of it is having respect for people, treating them with dignity and respect, not violating their rights. Being out there, even when we arrest somebody, um, being respectful and patient and kind to them. And, and maybe those same people are the ones that are gonna tell us about what's going on in the communities, giving us information so that we can do better with those investigations and focus on the right people. I don't know if that, if that helps, but it's, it can't be just a, I'll call it a shotgun approach. You just throw the spaghetti up on the wall and see what sticks. It's gotta be very strategic. We have to be very sensitive to our community and the people that we partner with and who we serve. Um, we need our community. We, we're not, we're, we're, we have, a million, almost a million, 100,000 people in Montgomery County, and we have less than 1,300 cops. And of that, eight or 900 in patrol. 
and we have almost 500 square miles. Do the math on that. On any given day, we have six districts. There's not a lot of cops out in the community. And a lot of them are in court or they're on calls for service or they're doing investigations. We don't have some huge number of people to resolve many of these really serious, complex, challenging issues. We have to rely on the community. We can't do it by ourselves. We only have so many eyeballs and so much of a presence, and we'd be fools. I think the old school policing, police thought they knew what they were doing all the time. We recognize now that's not the case. We have to partner with the community to be successful. I think we have time for maybe two or three questions uh, at, at the outside at this point. Okay, I'm just, Stella's giving me the high sign there. So, please. Um, sir. Thank you. Um, is this on? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Keat, um, retired State Department, even though Cato still shows me his State Department, and I've had a beard for ages. <laughs> um, Chief, this is to a certain extent directed to you, but anyone else who wants to comment on it. While, you know, I was listening to you talking, for example, about the children and how they're being traumatized by people um, discriminating against them for being Muslim and harassing them. I'm sure your heart is in the right place, but I think a lot of what you're talking about goes way beyond at least what I expect from the police department. I don't think that the police department can really deal with the whole range of issues in our society. And when we talk about preventing violence, um, you know, to what extent do we start moving more in the direction of Big Brother, which is what I think some of the other panelists have been talking about. Uh, wouldn't it really be better to focus your resources more on traditional policing, uh, looking for individuals who we have a reasonable believe, reason to believe are going to commit a crime and go after them or people who have already committed a crime rather than sort of going in this haystack type way where we're really going after entire groups. Um, and even when you're reaching out with the best of intent towards a group, the fact that you're reaching out to that group may make them feel stigmatized. So your best efforts, your best intent, may have the opposite effect. Great, great question. So I, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I will tell you, if, it was, if I'm any measure of, of, of an outcome, maybe one outcome, I can't tell you how many meals I've shared with my Muslim brothers over the last five or six years, um, how many celebrations I've been a part of, how many people that I've been welcomed into their, their mosque and, and, and their, their inner sanctum, conversations that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. Um, I see that as a huge positive. I'm fairly ignorant to some things, even though I've been in policing most of my life. Um, and so to have empathy, to have understanding, to be better capable, um, the, the one thing that I think is kind of being alluded to is that the police are some overwhelming force that are kind of pushing into space that we don't, we're not really qualified for and really shouldn't be in. I don't disagree with that. I don't think we're doing that. I think we're trying in Montgomery County at least. A lot of the things that I've heard today that have occurred around the country at the federal and state and other levels, I hope we're not doing in Montgomery County. I can assure you we shouldn't be doing some of these things. It's not a part of our approach or our program and so I would just say that we, we have to find a balance. That's our challenge. And I don't disagree with what you just said. 
My conference organizer tells me we can take one more question at this point in time. Sir. Hi, my name is Vivek Kambayan uh, with XLab, and my question is directed at something that Mike German, you mentioned that um, the FBI had investigated folks like one of the Sarnayev brothers, um, but that hadn't resulted in anything predictive. Has there been any indication from the FBI over the years about um, how they might be changing the way that they either react to or prepare for these kind of events? Um, it, it seems like to the public, as a layperson in the public, it seems like a black box, and, and we discuss these issues, but is there have you seen any indication um, that they're changing things in a more productive way or acknowledging when certain things haven't worked? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, and, and I was interested on the first panel when uh, a couple of the panelists said that they were concerned that uh, the next administration might try to expand the FBI's investigative authorities. Uh, under the 2008 guidelines that Michael McCasey put in place, the FBI was given the authority to do a type of investigation they call assessments, which allows the use of uh, recruiting and, and tasking informants. It allows overt and covert interviews. It allows a lot of intrusive surveillance, uh, not electronic surveillance. Um, but the standard for that is these, this is the quote out of the guidelines, no factual predicate necessary. No factual predicate necessary. You need no facts to suggest the person you want to investigate has done anything wrong or anybody else has done anything wrong. All you need is the subjective opinion that what you're doing is for the good of God and country. And, and that gives you the authority. Uh, after the, uh, the recent bombing in New York and New Jersey, um, a lot of... Uh, commentators were coming forward saying the FBI has to expand the time length of its investigations. Currently, does anybody know what the time limit for assessments are? No time limit. <laughs> I don't know how you get more authority than investigate whoever you want with no time limit. Right? It can't be expanded any further. And I have been arguing even before those guidelines were put in place that reducing the guidelines just, just increases the flood of information. And that's what's happening, is that these agencies are being so flooded with, with information, see something, say something, where they feel they have to go out and respond to these silly, you know, buying a pallet of water. Okay, if he's Middle Eastern and he bought a pallet of water, we better go interview him. Uh, kind of, uh, of nonsense work that's being done. It's like having false alarms going off constantly. And we, we don't allow you to pull the fire alarm in the building without a fire because we know that dulls response. Well, in our counterterrorism world, we're setting false alarms going constantly and, and creating this huge workload that is undermining their ability to focus on what is real evidence of harm, right? Because, they, you know, unfortunately, I wish it was true that there were warning signs. I wish that the FBI, when I joined, gave me a gun and a badge and a crystal ball. Uh, but they don't, and, and their ability to predict is no better than anybody else's. So what they need to do is focus on facts, not these debunked theories like radicalization, and certainly not chasing every, every silly thing that somebody has, has said, just because they said it. And with that, we are concluded for this panel. Let's give it up for our panelists. <laughs>